Amen. As you're following along at home, we just invite you to go ahead and be seated and uh, turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 15. Uh, We're working our way through uh, this particular chapter in the book of Acts. We've been working our way through the entirety of the book of Acts, but uh, we want to just pause here on Acts chapter 15 and we want to reflect. The church is special. It is special. It is established by Christ. He died for her. He is the foundation upon which she is established. And because of the Lord, the church can never be destroyed. Uh, that's not to say she doesn't have a lot of enemies. And that's not to say that there might not even be a few uh, within her secret brothers deceptively brought in uh, that seek to compromise her. And so uh, we're looking here in the book of Acts, chapter 15, and we're looking at this, this famous passage, which is also referred to and known as uh, the Jerusalem Council. And within this particular council, we learn a lot of things. Uh, the church is contending for correct doctrine. The church is establishing relationships within each church, from one church to the other church, defining the autonomy of the local church. We also see here the idea, the principle of congregationalism uh, being fleshed out and being enacted and put into practice. Um, And I just want to give you a little bit of a roadmap in terms of where we're going today, next week, and the week after. Today we're going to finish up this this, uh, first speech in the book of Acts, uh, Peter addressing the Jerusalem conference, the Jerusalem council. And then next week, we're going to be looking at the, at the verses that follow from, from 12 down to um, verse 21 approximately. And we're going to be looking at the role of the Holy Spirit in binding the church together and specifically how the members of that church, uh, how they yield to the Holy Spirit, how they, how they submit to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to establish that essentially no one has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. And then in two weeks' time, we're going to put all these things together to understand exactly how churches are to relate to other churches, how decision-making is even done within a local congregation. And one of the truths that's going to become just incredibly apparent to us as we're looking at that is that all forms of hierarchical church government, all forms of ecclesial hierarchical church governance. I'm, I don't think I'm saying that word quite right. This is how long I've been in isolation. I'm not even able to talk normal anymore. All forms of ecclesial authority that are not rooted in local church, we find, are just not biblical. They are, an, in effect, an attempt to come between the congregation, the individual believer, and Christ. There's a, an additional mediary that tries to come in. And we're going to be confronted from with that, that truth, that pretty unmistakable truth as we come to the end of this chapter, and it's going to leave us with some pretty clear answers regarding such denominations as Roman Catholicism and others regarding their regarding the fact that they're unbiblical. So that's kind of where we're going. And, uh, but the, today we're just looking at uh, the first part of Acts chapter 15. And so I just invite you again as you're following along at home, uh, I'll just read it to you. We'll pray. We'll ask God by his Holy Spirit to illuminate the text before us, and then we'll get to work. So if you would, just look with me. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 and following. Some men came down from Judea, came down to uh, the church there in Antioch. And they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas and some of the, and some of the others had had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. 
So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the, about the conversion of the Gentiles, and they brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and they said, it is necessary. And I want you to note that word, necessary. That, that word right there, that's where we went too far, okay? It is necessary. In other words, it is essential for their salvation, okay, to be circumcised, to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Now, I want you to just pause right there. It says the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. But if you'll recall, it was the church, the entire congregation, Antioch, that sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem about this question. And although verse 6 says that the elders and the apostles were gathered together to consider the matter, we know that the entire church, the church in its entirety was present because a little bit further on in verse 22, and we're going to get there in a few weeks' time, it says, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders together with the whole church to follow through on the decisions that they made. We'll see what those decisions are as we continue to work through this passage. But what I want to really impress upon you is that this was a congregational affair from start to finish. But at any rate, verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Okay? And then he concludes with this statement in verse 11. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. In other words, Peter is saying, we're saved by grace they're saved by grace. We're all the same. We believe that. Let's just pause for a moment and ask the Holy Spirit to help us, and then we'll get to work. Father in heaven, we pray, God, that you would illuminate this text before us this morning. We pray, God, that your spirit would just open our hearts and our minds and shine brightly upon your word that you have spoken, that we would understand all that you are saying to us and help us to recognize how it is to transform our lives in terms of our relationship with you, our relationship with each other. Lord, help us to understand what it means for our contending for the truth of the gospel. We pray you do this by your spirit this morning. In Christ's name, amen. If you were at home uh, during these last several weeks of isolation, uh, you probably recognized that your wife was doing more baking than she normally would have done. Uh, somebody announced a statement, uh, there was a, a survey that was released uh, in the last week that there's a yeast shortage in Canada because everybody is at home uh, baking bread, whereas they normally wouldn't be. And so uh, yeast and flour prices apparently have gone up. But if you, as the husband, were to go home and to suggest to your wife, you know what, yeast is getting expensive, uh, you can make bread without yeast. Do you think your wife might laugh at you? Of course she would. 
she'd cluck her tongue in disapproval at you. By the same token, if you were to inquire at a gas station about the possibility of adding water to the gas in your gas tank in order to stretch it a little bit further, the gas attendant would laugh at you. If you were to suggest to a silver collector, perhaps, that he might preserve the shine on his silver and keep it from being tarnished by hiding it away in bottles of hydrogen peroxide, he'd laugh at you. And if you were to suggest to a gunsmith that he could reload shells with gunpowder by the light of a kerosene lantern, he'd slap you silly. That's just not safe. There are certain things in this world which if you introduce something into it, it becomes something totally different. No baker, no silver collector, no hunter is ever going to take those kinds of suggestions seriously because there are just certain chemical products in life that must maintain their purity or they're useless. They're useless. We have many examples in chemistry that show this, and I've mentioned them to you already, just a few of them. If you put an old dime, that is one that's actually made of silver, one minted before 1967, into a bottle of hydrogen peroxide, the silver will react so rapidly that in a split second, in a couple of seconds, you'll have nothing left of the dime. If you put even the smallest spark of fire into a barrel of gunpowder, the gunpowder is gone, and you with it. If you were to put just a drop, a single drop of perchloric acid into, if you're to bring it into contact with gasoline or diesel, it would explode. And there are just certain things that don't mix, like oil and water. They just don't mix. In the scriptures, what we see is that this understanding of salvation by grace cannot have anything to do with human works. And the second that you introduce human works into the equation that you somehow say there's something I have to do that is added to the gift of salvation that God gives us, you've just nullified the gift. You have debased and revoked grace in toto, in its entirety. It cannot sustain any addition to it. Grace, salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone, stands completely and totally separate from any human merit or any human endeavor. And this was a principle which the apostles and the early church rightly understood was worth fighting for. We have already seen last week that the church in Antioch sent Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem to, to visit with the elders and the apostles about this question. One of the things I forgot to mention last week which you need to be aware of, is that the church in Antioch was not neutral in this whole thing. It was like, hmm, we're not really sure. Grace or works, how does this all work together? Let's send a neutral group down to present both sides of the argument and to see what the guys in Jerusalem say. They didn't send neutral persons down there. The church clearly tips its hand. The church in Antioch clearly tips its hand, showing which way they're leaning by choosing Paul and Barnabas. You'll notice none of the Pharisees, none of the Judaizers, that is, the individuals arguing for circumcision, accompanied Paul and Barnabas down to Jerusalem. The church in Antioch wants a firm answer to this question, but they tip their hand. They show you which way they're leaning by sending as their representatives two guys that are unabashedly, unashamedly in the 
grace camp. There is no room for Paul and Barnabas in terms of their presentation of the gospel to allow for any, any works. So this is not a neutral conversation. They are all in on grace, and they're looking for the church of Jerusalem to agree with a position that they pretty well have already arrived at. So what you have is you have one church, a church in Antioch, that is being troubled by individuals from Jerusalem that are teaching that essentially you have to add to salvation, you have to add to the grace of salvation with human effort of some kind. They're being troubled by these people from Jerusalem who are teaching this. They already know the gospel. They've already believed in it. They send their two strongest advocates for grace down to Jerusalem to visit with the brothers there in order to get a firm answer that this is what Jerusalem also believes. But we, we're not, we need to be careful and not read into the text that somehow Antioch is thinking they're looking for Jerusalem to issue some sort of an edict by which Antioch necessarily is going to be bound. The circumstances are such that people from Jerusalem have come to Antioch. Now, Antioch wants to know what it is that Jerusalem really thinks about this. We understand that this is an important council. It's an important decision that's being made, but we should never, ever be tricked or deceived into thinking that somehow Antioch is submitting wholeheartedly at the outset to whatever decision Jerusalem is about to make. Jerusalem is going to hold their council. They're going to come to a decision about these things. And of course, Antioch is going to take that into advisement, but we're not entering into this discussion as though somehow Jerusalem is a superior church to the Antioch church. They come to this table to have this conversation as equals. That's what we need to notice. And Wolf, this isn't the first time that Paul has been bothered about this. We, we know that Paul has already addressed this when he was church planting in southern Turkey amongst the churches of Galatia, writing in the book of Galatians in chapter 2, verse 5, as he's trying to deal with this, this same kind of heresy, he makes the statement to the churches in Galatia. He says, to them, referencing the Judaizers, we did not yield in submission even for a moment in order that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. This is before Paul comes to Jerusalem. He's already had these heated debates. He's already had these discussions. All of this is before the Jerusalem council. And he is making the statement to churches that he has planted in South Galatia. We did not bow down to this false doctrine even for a second. We didn't allow it any room, any foothold. We did this in order that the truth of the gospel would be kept for you. And that puts it into context why the Jerusalem conference is so important. We're striving to come into a clear-cut understanding and an agreement between churches about the nature of works, the things that we do, and the relationship those works have to our salvation. This is an effort at unity, but because it is an effort at unity, it naturally involves conflict and disagreement. And this is the manner in which they enter into this discussion. They go down there, they present their case, there's a lot of back and forth, there's a lot of debate, and at one point, finally, Peter is ready to speak to the issue. He stands up. If you'll look with me, I'm going to be picking it up here. This is uh, halfway through verse 7. 
says, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Okay? He gave us the Holy Spirit just as he did them, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Peter stands up and he makes this opening statement. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. That's the first point that he makes. Jesus has chosen Peter to be his representative to the Gentiles. We saw this already as we've been preaching through the book of Acts all the way back in chapter 10. As we reflect on Peter, as we saw last week, this was a true blue Jew, if I could use that term. This was a man that was born in Israel. This is a man that was raised observing all the Mosaic laws and all the Mosaic traditions, circumcised, obviously. And he was there with Christ from the beginning of his ministry. This was a man that walked along with Jesus all the way through. Now, when you consider the ministry of Christ... Jesus was not afraid to drop on, to dump on the Pharisees. He called them names. He called them names like hypocrite. He called them names like snakes and vipers. He one time described them as being whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones, which is essentially the epitome of calling someone unclean that is unaccepted in the presence of the Lord. I mean, he was really railing on the Pharisees, but he never issued any kind of a criticism as strongly to the Pharisees as what he did to his own disciple, Peter. And you'll recall that at one point, Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, Jesus, let me just explain to you how this is. I love this. Every time I think about it, Peter trying to set Jesus straight. He did. He tried. He told Jesus, you're not going to Jerusalem. You're not going to be crucified. This is never going to happen to you. And Jesus criticized Peter with a rebuke, a, an insult that does not come close to any of the insult. It, it surpasses and exceeds any of the other names he ever called the Pharisees by. He said, get behind me, Satan. Because in that moment, Peter is directly confronting and contradicting the will of God by trying to keep Christ from going to the cross. So Peter, he's a man that is quick to speak, slow to listen, and is more often than not putting his foot in his own mouth. This is a guy that on the night that Christ was crucified, denied him three times, even though he swore up and down, up and down, I will never forsake you. And of course, Jesus comes to Peter on the beach beside the Sea of Galilee as they're fishing. He says, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. He says, feed my sheep. You conclude that in the Gospel of John, you think, okay, Peter's ready. And he is ready for that next step. But God is going to take him still further. He begins by preaching to Jews in Jerusalem at Pentecost. But then we find him in Acts chapter 10, and Cornelius has sent messengers to him and has said, essentially, Peter has to have this vision. God speaks to Peter in a vision three times. This sheet is let down from heaven with snakes and all kinds of unclean creatures in it. 
And three times a voice comes from heaven telling Peter to rise, kill, and eat. And three times Peter is like, no, Lord, I've never done that. I've never eaten anything that is unclean. I've not defiled myself in that way. And God responds to Peter. He says, don't call unclean or common what God has made clean. And Peter goes, and after that vision, he goes to the household of Cornelius, and he proclaims the gospel to Cornelius. And essentially, he proclaims a gospel of grace. He says to the household of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, the word that was sent to Israel is the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. And then he preaches a little bit more to the household of Cornelius, and he concludes by saying, To him, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. And so Cornelius hears this word of grace. It's grace. And Peter begins his address to the Jerusalem conference by saying, you know that God chose me, a man that deserved nothing, that did nothing to earn anything. I never merited anything. I was chosen solely because of God's grace. And my resume is well known. You know that time and again, I've put my foot in my mouth. I've messed this up time and again. And God chose me not because of anything special I had done, but he chose me to lead, to preach, to proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ saves. And he has already sent me to preach to the Gentiles. We've already had this conversation here in Jerusalem. We've already had this debate when Cornelius got saved. You know that we've already done this. You know that God chose me. You know that I'm nothing special. You know they're nothing special. In fact, you know none of us are anything special. But God made this choice that by my mouth, they would hear the gospel and that they would believe. That is Peter's first point. And then he goes a step further. He says... And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them. He says, you already recall from when Cornelius got saved that this was repentance that had been granted to the Gentiles by God. You already know that. God bore witness. He testified. He testified to all of you here at the Jerusalem conference that he accepted the Gentiles on the basis of their faith in him. And he makes this statement, he God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. It's as though Peter is saying to them gathered there, Pentecost, anyone? 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 Do you remember? We were just all gathered around in an upper room wondering what the, what the day was going to hold, and God gave us this amazing gift of the Holy Spirit. We didn't do anything to earn it. We didn't do anything to deserve it. God gave it to us as a gift, as an act of grace. And he gave it to them, same as us. This is all prologue. This has all been established already. Peter goes on to say that he gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he's going to make this statement at the very end. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord. We're all going to be saved through God's grace. Well, what do we mean when we talk about grace? What are we getting at here? In order to really understand grace, we have to really understand all of the alternatives to it. And there are a couple of different ways that individuals try to go to heaven apart from God's grace. 
there are two types of what I would call anti-grace. Just two. Not complex, not hard to remember. The first is essentially irreligion, okay? Anti-religion. This is the person that says, you know what? I'm going to do it my way. I don't care what any religion says. I don't care what any moral philosopher says. I don't care what any teacher might suggest. This is the life I have. I'm going to live it to the fullest, and I'm going to do it my way. I'm reminded of that old Frank Sinatra song titled, My Way. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. My friend, I'll make it clear. I'll state my case, of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway, and more, much more, I did it. I did it my way. And that's essentially anti-religion. Don't care what anyone says. Don't care what anyone thinks. I'm my own boss. I am my own savior. I'll do what I think is right. That's anti-religion. But there's another form of anti-grace, which is not anti-religion. There's anti-grace belief system that is very religious. Very religious. It's this form of religiosity that says, I'm going to be my own savior but I'm going to do it by being very, very good. I'm not going to do it my way, but I am going to do it my way through being really, really well behaved. Religion and religiosity in this sense, this form of anti-grace is captured perfectly by the famous author Flannery O'Connor, who once wrote about one of her characters, Hazel Motes, that, quote, he knew that the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. The best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin, says Flannery O'Connor. And that's essentially what religiosity is. It says, I understand that I can only be saved and go to heaven by grace, that this only comes to me by the name of Christ. I don't want Christ in my life, but I still want this idea of heaven. So rather than surrendering and submitting to Jesus as my Savior, I'm going to get to heaven my way, but I'm going to do so by avoiding sin. So you have anti-religion, and then you have religiosity. These are anti-grace, both of them equally anti-grace, whereas the definition of grace is this. It is the opposite of karma. We don't get paid back on some sort of cosmic scale where if we do good, we deserve good. Grace is the opposite of karma, which is all about getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. B.B. Warfield defines it this way. Grace is free, sovereign favor of God given to the ill-deserving. John Stott says, Grace is the love of God that cares and stoops and rescues Jerry Bridges writes that grace is essentially God reaching downward to people who are in rebellion against him. A shorthand for what grace is, is mercy, not merit. Grace is the opposite, then, of karma. Karma is all about getting what you deserve, but grace is about getting what you don't deserve. But it goes more than this. Grace is about not getting what you do deserve. You get what you don't deserve, and you are spared from that to which you 
fully deserve to receive, namely judgment. Grace, in this sense, breaks down karma at every turn. Christ teaches us that through the cross, what we deserve is way, way more than a good moral lecture and more efforts at pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. This is not simply an exhortation to do better, try harder. Christ dies. He has to suffer and die on the cross. And the testimony we receive in that moment from Christ is that you and I don't deserve to try harder, do better. What we really deserve for our sins is execution. We deserve to die. Grace, then, is removing from us that which we deserve, which is justice, judgment, death, and giving us something we don't deserve, which is life, forgiveness, hope, love. While everyone desperately needs it, grace is not first and foremost about us. Grace is most importantly a word about God. In his uncoerced initiative and in persistent and unrivaled care for us, God shows his favor for us. He gives his blessing to us and he grants his mercy to cover us, though we don't deserve any of it. That's grace. He loves us. Michael Horton writes, In grace, God gives nothing less than himself. Grace, then, isn't a third thing or a substance mediating between God and sinners. Grace is Jesus Christ. That's what grace really is. Because you don't get any of those blessings and you don't get any of those benefits and you're not pardoned from any of that justice and judgment apart from Jesus Christ. Grace is Jesus. Jesus is grace. Peter makes this statement in Acts chapter 15. God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them. God testified to them. And he did this by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. You don't get the Holy Spirit apart from Christ. Because they have the Holy Spirit, and we've seen the evidence of that, we know that they are embracing Jesus Christ. God makes that clear to us. That's essentially what Peter is saying. And he goes on in verse 9. He says, he's made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. No difference between us and them. Their hearts are cleaned by faith. You know, there's an old Calvin and a Hobbes cartoon uh, in which Calvin is instructed to go out and and to cut the grass. And uh, he decides to make a game of it. And he goes out and he's cutting the grass using scissors. He's got this huge yard he's got to cut, and he's going to chop each little blade of grass one by one. And Hobbes comes out and says, oh, so that's your method, right? That's your method. All mankind is striving for some means or some method of salvation. And the method that they're using is ineffective. It will never succeed. It is an impossible method. Christ teaches that our main problem is sin. What then is the solution, or what then, we might ask, is the method of salvation? Even if you accept the Lord's diagnosis that our problem is sin, there doesn't seem to be a compelling reason, as far as many people are concerned, for why one has to come to Christianity as a religion for the solution. 
After all, though Christ might show us what our problem is, can't some other religion or some other method guide us out of this problem that we find ourselves in? And the answer to that question is that there's a profound difference between Jesus and any other religion. See, all other religions teach us to seek salvation essentially by doing more, trying harder, gritting our teeth, bearing up under it, trying to make ourselves into the kind of people we think we ought to be if we are to go to heaven. That's essentially what every other religion out there teaches. But Christianity is totally different And it's absolutely unique in this regard. You won't find any other method of salvation anywhere in this world, be it environmentalism, be it political activism, be it Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam. You won't find any other method of salvation that comes even close to Christ, that comes close to this this wonderfully good news of salvation by grace. You won't come anywhere near it anywhere else. There is no method of believing or behaving anywhere else in the world that comes close to Jesus. Jesus doesn't simply show us a way. Jesus is the way to salvation. He provides the way for us. He gives it to us as a gift. Now, if you were to see, uh, you you wouldn't be able to tell the difference if you were to look at two different individuals sitting in a church, one of them believing in salvation by grace and the other one not necessarily believing in salvation by grace. I mean, you couldn't see it here in Jerusalem. You had individuals there that are described even as believers. That is, the scriptures are identifying them as true Christians. But they're holding this idea of works and circumcision and Mosaic law. And by the same token, the scriptures make clear you could have people in the church that portray themselves as true Christians And they would talk about grace. And they would talk about the fact that God's mercy is all that is necessary to save. And then you have a real Christian that believes in grace and is working hard to walk with the Lord. And between all these different groups, you wouldn't necessarily know the difference. So what is the difference? Well, let me show it to you. Both of them, to be looked at from the outside, would pray, give generously, They'd be loyal to their church. They'd be faithful to their family. They'd try to live decent lives. However, the difference is in the motivation of their heart. When it comes to the heart, in religion, that is religiosity, we try to obey the divine standards of what constitutes righteousness out of fear. We believe that if we don't obey... We're going to lose God's blessing, and therefore, in a desire to continue to earn and curry his favor, we try harder, we work harder, we essentially try to do better. Now, if you look at that individual versus the other individual, the other individual is going to have a slightly different motivation. In the gospel, the motivation is one of gratitude for the blessing that we've already received because of Christ. In the gospel, the motivation is one of an ongoing expectant hope of God for future blessings. And again, this is on the basis of what Christ has done for us. So in religiosity, the motivation is I need to earn God's favor and I need to work to continue to keep God's favor. But in grace, it's all about relationship. I have God's favor. I'm striving to walk with Christ. One operates out of fear. 
The other out of hope. Those are two radically different motivations. And you see this in the fruit. You see this in terms of what comes out when people talk about their walk with God. In religion or religiosity, if you were living up to your own chosen standards for what you think constitutes acceptable religious performance, then you feel very, very confident. In fact, you even begin to feel superior and perhaps even disdainful towards others whom you consider not to be living up to your standards of religiosity. You look at those around you that aren't giving as much as you, that aren't working as hard as you, that aren't trying as hard as you to be a blessing towards others, and you begin to look down upon them. You become an arrogant success in your own mind. But by the same token, if you fail to meet your own standards of religiosity in terms of what you should do, well, then you're crushed. You're worthless. You're useless. You are utterly struck down. You feel like a total failure. And so the fruit that comes out is either I'm useless or I'm really awesome. (laughs) There's no in-between ground. There's just these wild extremes that you swing to one or the other. You're either succeeding and therefore better than everyone else, or you're not succeeding and you're a failure and you're not sure you're going to make it to heaven. These kinds of extremes are not what mark the Christian. You see, Whenever a religious moralist performs up to their own standards, they feel confident. Whenever they don't, they feel like a failure. But when it comes to the true Christian, unlike any other religion in the world, the Christian bases his day-by-day walk and his understanding of who he is in Christ. In other words, his identity is found in Jesus. That is profoundly different. You say, well, how is that? When we meet each other at, uh, at coffee parties um, or get-togethers, when, when you meet someone for the first time, you introduce yourself, you say, hello, it's good to meet you, so-and-so, my name is Joshua Claycamp, and they introduce themselves, my name is Bob, whoever, you know, and uh, you're talking, and within 30 seconds, give or take, Bob or myself, one of us is going to say, so what do you do for a living? That is how we're oriented to think. You're understood by what you do. Your career is a part of your identity. Very often, when we think in terms of our faith, we think in terms of what it is we do. But when it comes to Christianity, we're not thinking of it in terms of what we do. We're thinking of it in terms of our identity in relationship to Jesus. It's not to say that there's not things that we're trying to do. It is to say that who we are is not understood by what we accomplish. If I could back up a little bit and explain it to you this way. A number of years ago, my family was up at Sun Peaks at wintertime. And, uh, you know, we were all freezing and cold and wet because we'd rolled down the hill and had snow, you know, in our, inside our jackets and we were just miserable. And uh, my wife took our very young daughter at that time, we just had Chloe, into a coffee shop to get some hot chocolate. And I was outside watching, and there was a father there in the snow playing with his young, young son, probably, probably a little boy around six or seven years of age. And this father took these gigantic steps through the snow, gigantic steps. And uh, he then turned around and he said something to his son, and his son was trying to walk in the father's footsteps. And, and he couldn't do it. He, he tried to hop, and he'd stumble and fall, and 
So you had this pristine snowbank, and you had these crisp steps that the father had marked out in the snowbank, and the son couldn't do it. He was following and making a mess, and he wasn't able to exactly put his steps right where the steps of his father had been. And so at one point, his father picks his son up, and again, they had a little conversation that I couldn't hear at that distance, and he puts his son on his shoes. We've all seen this so many times. And he held his son under his arms, and then he took these gigantic steps that were far greater and far larger than any his son could have taken. But he held his son on him so that the son's feet were guided exactly into the footsteps where he was stepping. Now, at any moment, the son could have said, no, I'm every bit as awesome as you, Dad. I can do this on my own. And he could have shrugged off and kicked away from his father and tried it in his own strength again. But the only way he would have ever been successful is simply to embrace the gift of his father carrying him and doing his best to walk and to keep in step with his father. That is the nature of grace. That is the nature of what we are called to do as we walk with Christ. We have a relationship with Jesus. It has all been done for us on the cross. And now we're called to walk with Christ. But if in that moment you begin to think, yes, I can do this, you have ceased to depend upon Christ and you have started to depend upon yourself. And if that morphs out into a full-blown religion, you will notice it is taking root in your heart when you begin to look down and to disdain those around you for not striving to achieve the same standards of religious excellence that you have prescribed. All of us, good Christians and bad Christians, does not matter. We are Christians if we are in Christ. Now, this this opens the question, what is necessary then for salvation? Repentance. Absolutely, repentance but recognizing that repentance is still an act of faith that looks to the Lord for help, that looks to the Lord for, for guidance and effort to carry you through, that seeks all of its joy and all of its satisfaction in Christ. You know that you're into religion when Jesus is not a regular part of the thought process and you're looking at how amazing you're doing walking with the Lord, so you think. And you're looking down at everyone else who isn't, who isn't as good as you. But you know that you're walking by grace when you recognize that as you have surrendered to Christ, he has helped you. And your encouragement to those who are still struggling to repent, to obey, to trust in the Lord, is essentially that, a struggle to surrender to the Holy Spirit and his guidance in their lives. You are not any better than them you are not in any way superior to them because their salvation and your salvation all come back to the cross. To suggest otherwise is to test the Lord. And again, I see that our time is gone this morning. There's so much that needs to be said about this passage. I don't want to rush this particular statement. 
the Lord had made it clear what his will was. And by insisting on, insisting on this works being added to grace, they were, in, a sense, in effect, manipulating and challenging the Lord. And we want to spend a little bit more time talking about that as well. So we'll look at that next week. But this morning, I just want to close. Dr. Morehouse, famous British evangelist, it was suggested that his ministry uh, gave, uh, bore fruit in, in, terms of the, in terms of D.L. Moody, that D.L. Moody came to faith and was saved as a result of Morehouse's preaching. There are a couple of other famous names um, that, uh, that have been attributed to Dr. Morehouse's preaching, but Dr. Morehouse tells a story of a little boy that he encountered in England once upon a time, walking down the dirt path from the the store back to his village, back to his cottage at his home village. And there was a little boy that had been ordered by his mother to go and get milk. And he'd taken the pitcher from home, filled it with milk at the dairy farmer and at the dairy farmer's farm and was on his way home. And he'd tripped and he'd stumbled on the path and the pitcher, which was a simple clay sort of pitcher, had shattered on the path and the milk had gone everywhere. And the boy was weeping because he knew as soon as he got home, his mother was going to whip him. Dr. Morehouse steps down and he says, why are you crying? He says, ah, I've spilled the milk and I'm surely going to get a whipping when I get home to my mom. Dr. Morehouse says, it's okay. Maybe we can put this picture back together. Never one to miss an opportunity to teach. They struggled for a few minutes. Dr. Morehouse would pick up a piece and he'd put it there and he'd balance it kind of like a deck of cards and he'd put another piece next to it and they're trying to reconstruct this picture and they can't even get the base to go back together. After about a half hour of this, he says, oh, I guess it's hopeless. To which the boy then again erupted up, er, erupted into tears, recognizing the futility of trying to repair what had been broken. Dr. Morehouse picked him up and said, I have a better idea. Why don't I just give you a new pitcher and a new, a new amount of milk? And he took him to the crockery store where they bought a brand new pitcher, and then he took him back to the, dairies, to the dairy farm where they got it filled with milk, and then Dr. Morehouse carried the boy in one arm while he held the pitcher of milk in the other. And he took the boy all the way back to his home, set him on the front porch, handed him the pitcher, and said, now do you think your mom's going to give you a whipping? He said, I don't think so, sir, but I'm not entirely sure what to expect. She's going to ask a lot of questions. Dr. Morehouse was taken back, and he says, why would she ask you questions? You're here. You've got the pitcher. You've got the milk. It says, this pitcher is way, way nicer and fancier than the original pitcher that I left with this morning. And that is the truth of salvation. It comes to us as a gift by grace. What we leave with when we walk with the Lord is way better than anything we ever had when we started this whole sorry affair. Church, Believe in Jesus. Trust that he loves you. Trust in the grace of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we say thank you for your salvation. We say thank you, Lord, that it comes to us purely as a gift. And as we're reflecting on this, Lord, we pray that your spirit would just continue to illuminate the text that is before us. Father, as we conclude Peter's sermon next week and this expression, putting you to the test, 
Our prayer, Lord, is that we would not be found guilty of putting you to the test, but that we would hope in your salvation entirely as an act of grace. God, thank you for saving us and thank you for doing it entirely of your own accord in your own power. Thank you for adopting us as sons and daughters through no merit of our own, but entirely based upon who you are. Thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.